The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Peter 1.17. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Father, help us to see this to come and tremble before you with reverent worship and awe. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I was imagining what if I could write down on a single sheet of paper. I'm quite sure it would take both sides, and I wonder if one, paper, one piece of paper would suffice. If I was to write down the fears of every person in this sanctuary today, you wouldn't likely find them easily admissible to me. If I was to ask you, what are you afraid of? Many people would say nothing. But I actually think all of us are afraid of some things. Somebody here is scared about a health verdict or surgery that's coming up. Somebody dreads the possibility of losing their job. Someone else is worried about retirement income stretching far enough. A wife maybe harbors a deep and dark distress. She wouldn't admit to anybody that her husband doesn't love her anymore. It's remarkable when we think of Christmas and of angelic announcements and many things around the coming of Christ, how often someone was saying to others, don't be afraid, fear not. For God breaking into human life and human affairs was frightening. The ways in which he did it was inexplicable to some people, and they trembled to see what God was doing. Last week we sang a Christmas carol that if I had had better foresight, I might have placed this Sunday when we sang the Advent hymn that says, Let all mortal flesh keep silence and with fear and trembling stand. As it tells us, God is doing something wonderful before which human beings must simply be quiet and look and wonder. A proper reverential fear of God and Christ leads to that. Proper worship. Jesus himself, as an adult, said in Mark 10, 28, Do not fear 
those who can kill your body but cannot kill your soul. Rather, he said, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in, in hell. That's God. There's a proper way to fear God, not to be terrified, not to run away from him as if he was a monster who was going to destroy you. But there's a right fear, and we're almost always turning our fear toward the wrong things. A century or more ago, it would have been common in Western life, in the Christianized world, for someone to say of a man or a woman, well, there's a God-fearing man. There's a God-fearing woman. I don't think we hear that very often anymore because perhaps that whole idea has passed out of our speech in a society where we are fearing circumstances and resources, money, things, other people, but not particularly fearing God. Last Sunday, 1 Peter 1.16 gave us a strong call from God. It's found in the Old Testament, and Peter raised it up here by the Holy Spirit. Be holy, God said, because I am holy. And we had to ask what that meant. Be devoted to God. Be reflecting the character of God insofar as he has worked his salvation in you. But now 117 of 1 Peter gives us another thought of motivation along this same line. And I'm going to show you three ways in which this concept of fearing God are, are found in this passage today. As Peter, first of all, tells Christians, since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. The first of these three points is this. We tremble to realize that our father is also our judge. Peter, you see, was writing to Christians, not non-believers. If he'd been writing to non-believers, he would have said, you'd better be afraid because God may condemn you to a godless eternity where there will be no joy and where you'll be separated from God forever. But that isn't what he was talking about. He was writing to those whose salvation and whose position in Christ by the work of the cross and the new birth was settled. And those who knew, therefore, that at the last day God would save them, would give them eternity with him. That wasn't in doubt. But verse 17 refers to God's scrutiny of the works of those who are believers. It's not their salvation that's in question. It's how have they lived, consequently, to knowing Christ and being called his own. Romans fourteen twelve says, each of you will give an account of himself to God. That's spoken to believers. 1 Corinthians 3.13 says each one's work will become manifest at the great day. It will be disclosed, revealed as by fire. Now, many people would assume if we're talking about the fatherhood of God, that the idea of God as a judge is too opposite to that, and you couldn't have a father who was also a judge, but that's quite wrong. These two things come together, Peter is writing. Him who we call Father also judges according to each one's deeds. And we could see that in our own lives. If you're a parent, put yourself in the situation which some of you are in, some of you have been in, some of you will be in the day that 
someone in your house becomes age 16 and gets a driver's license. I hit this day once, uh, you know, double whammy, two at once. And, of course, this is a very anxious time for a parent because you have to acknowledge the idea of your young person growing up and becoming independent, so you do everything you can to get them some instruction, but then they've got that license, and they back out the driveway in the family Ford, and they're cruising around town doing who knows what. Well, in my day, they didn't have something that you parents, you were younger, I understand have, and I can't describe all the particulars, but it's my understanding that you can use the technology of today somehow or other to hook in to what's going on in the Ford as it's cruising town. You can know where it is, how fast it's traveling, and even whether the driver is texting. This is great. I would have made available uh, to myself and my wife this technology had it been around about 20-plus years ago. For me, it wasn't there. We would not consider a parent to be doing something abusive or terribly... Well, the, the teenager would, but nobody else would consider that this was a terrible thing, that mom or dad would want to hook in and say, I'm going to be monitoring you. I'm going to be watching your works, lest you stray too far and think I'm not paying attention. Well, First Peter 1.17 says, Your loving Heavenly Father similarly cares about your works what you're doing in response to him and his law and his good instruction for your life. He indeed is your Abba, your Father, for eternity, and yet there should be a deep respect for him such that you would actually tremble over the idea of displeasing him or or violating his good pleasure. If you want to state it positively, you would be seeking the Lord's approval and prize that in your life as a Christian. Hopefully, teenagers want their parents to approve of them. I don't know whether we took a poll, what answer we'd get on that, but, but in the long term, I think they want to please their parents as long as it doesn't cost them too much. To win a smile of fatherly pleasure from the eternal God is a great thing. It's all the sunshine one life can, can contain, I would say. But this fear of God, you see, is a positive thing, and it involves mistrust of ourselves, knowing that we can easily go astray. We can very easily take off in all kinds of directions of selfish uh, fulfillment that are going to displease our Father. One commentator on this verse 17 said this. He wrote, this fear of God is not cowardice, And it does not debase us. It elevates us in the Christian mind. It drowns out lower fears. It grants us fortitude to encounter dangers for the sake of winning a good conscience in obedience to God. The question is, does the idea of God as a watchful, fatherly judge motivate us? Does it make us say, I want his approval? Does it make you scornfully say, I don't care what God thinks of me. I've got Jesus as my Savior. I can live any way I want. Well, that's a pretty gross way to say it, but isn't that the way some people live? Are we motivated by the fact that the one who is our Father is also our benevolent judge? Well, secondly, our text goes on 
and slides forward into telling us a little more about how to live in this unique way as those who are reborn by grace through faith to a living hope, as was said back there in the early part of chapter 1. Look at verse 18 and following. Let me read that again. It was not with perishable things like silver or gold that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or spot. This is related to what we just looked at. Here we're learning this. Proper fear of God trembles at the price of our redemption. There really are people in this world, wealthy people, who have an abundance of resources, who form the philosophy that they can accomplish almost anything they want with their money. Everybody's got their price, you know, and and these people swagger through the world, quite sure, that if they just write a big enough check or put enough cash in somebody's palm, they can accomplish almost anything. And, of course, there are many ways in which they find that they can do that. But they may be shocked to discover there certainly are some things that no amount of money can accomplish for them. You cannot cleanse a soul with money. You cannot make up for broken marriage vows with money. You cannot atone for a lack of love and actions of cruelty towards somebody with money. And surely your checkbook will have no influence at all at the gate of heaven. Peter says here, think about the things that you consider most precious. Silver and gold he chooses, and that still fits today because silver and gold are still very prominent in our economy as precious substances. And I think it's as if Peter's saying, well, I'm going to say that silver and gold are perishable things. Now, we don't think they are. We say just, you know, pile up the back of my minivan with a a bushel of gold bars, and I'll be a happy person. But Peter says, well, those are just perishable things. They seem valuable, but they don't last. Their value doesn't enter into God's economy. Peter says that something much greater has been paid to buy the redemption of our souls, and gold and silver couldn't do it. Similarly, we read in Hebrews 9.14, if the blood of bulls and goats achieved for the Israelites a temporary ceremonial cleansing from sin, the author there writes, how much more will the blood of Christ who offered himself unblemished, sinless before God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death? In other words... Sin, sin offerings of the Old Testament were one thing. They had a place. They, they symbolically did something, represented something. But compared to the reality of the accomplishment in Christ offering himself, they were nothing. The blood of the cross, he's saying here, was a priceless thing. Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, not so long ago, a month or so ago, we came through Veterans Day when we honor veterans in our country. Earlier in the year, we have Memorial Day when we honor the dead of our military. And just very recently, we've had an anniversary of Pearl Harbor. And we're made to think in a good way of that which is hard to think about, all the men and women who have had to die for the price of freedom. 
somehow in all my knowledge of past Pearl Harbor days, I never picked up the fact before in knowing that 2,400 or so died that day at Pearl Harbor, I never had the fact isolated for me that more than 1,100 of those 2,400 died in the one battleship, Arizona. Imagine that. Over 1,000 sailors killed in the attack on that one battleship, Arizona, whose memorial is there today. It's astonishing to think of what people have had to pay for freedom. But while we are due to respect and need to respect our war dead, I am not disrespecting them when I say, think of all the millions who have died in combat for this country from the Revolutionary War to the Civil War to the Spanish-American War to World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan. Think of all the lives certainly millions who've died for our country. Astonishing. But let me say this, and please do not come to me and say I disrespected our war dead because I am not doing that. I am saying all those millions of human lives do not equal in value the one life of Jesus Christ because he was the Son of God. And God sent his Son into the world at Christmas to buy our salvation, to redeem. Just like in the old days in the first century, you could, if you were a wealthy man and you had a slave or a servant who was particularly well-liked and honored in your house, and you said, I'm, I'm tired of that man being my slave. I'd like him to be my friend. And you could pay a price and set him free, and then he could still serve you if he chose to, but you were allowing him to make the choice to serve you rather than enforcing it through slavery. God sent his son to pay the ransom redemption price for us to be free. And we should have awe before God at the depth and length and breadth and height of this price. Peter is saying, Look what was paid for you, not a bunch of gold bars or silver that really in eternal terms are trash. What was paid was the precious blood of Christ. Wow. Can you think of anything more prized than that? And why was it done? Verse 18 says the goal of it was, quote, to buy you out of an empty way of life, not just to punch your ticket for heaven as some might think of it, but to give you a whole new life. Paul wrote in Titus 2.14, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us, buy us out of all wickedness, and to purify for himself a people of his very own who are eager to do what is right. A new life is what Christ paid for. How blasphemous it is then that anyone would sing the popular life theme of so many Americans who go through life saying, I've got to be me. It's my life. Nobody tells me what to do with it. If you're tempted to join in that foolish song, I ask you to think hard about 1 Corinthians 6.20, which says just the opposite. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. All the actions of your life, not just 
sexuality, but all your relationships, everything your body is involved in doing, your career, your work. Glorify God in your body. Don't tell me your bodily actions and words are tied into an empty old way of life and you can't do anything about it. This scripture is saying, no, Christ was offered with his blood to buy you out of that old futility of the way of life people are locked into in this world and think they cannot escape. And if you don't believe that, you're actually trampling the death of Christ underfoot. You're devaluing it. Can you think on Christ offering himself and say, after I know what that is, I'm just going to go back and determine my own life the way I want to do it, the way that pleases me? If you think that way, I would say, we have to challenge, are you really a Christian after all? For the cross causes God's people to tremble in awe and admiration of the price that has been paid. Thirdly, today, listen to 1 Peter 1, 20 to 21 here. It continues with a slight bent in another direction. Speaking about Christ and his cross, Peter now says, He, Christ, was foreknown from before the foundation of the world, but made manifest in these last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Therefore, your faith and hope are in God. I state that last point to say proper fear of God reckons with the vast scope of an eternal plan coming about. We need to remember this at Christmas. The miracle, the wonder of Christ didn't just start in Bethlehem. It goes all the way back. It's as if Peter's saying God is offering you a a sort of super telescope and you can put your eye to its lens and, and look back through the eons and the millennia before there were any calendars, before you could record time, look all the way back into the council chambers of the triunity of God as Father, Son, and Spirit made counsel together and decreed how they would address a sinful world that didn't even exist yet. Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. That's an amazing statement. That is, Christ who went to a cross to pay this enormous price was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And all those to whom the, the price would be applied, who would come one day with real faith and trust in him, were foreknown before the foundation of the world. Now, folks, I know you think Presbyterians just love to leap on these things when we find it in the Scripture, but I didn't write the Bible. Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. When God foreknows something, that something must come to pass. Otherwise, what kind of a God do you have? Do we have a God that we would say of him, well, he knew and in his plan he allowed that a great tragedy would come to America called 9-11 15 years ago. But then along came the day and uh, God had to admit, well, I guess I goofed up on figuring that one out of what I would allow there. Um, I'll have to forestall it for another time because I, I just didn't get it right. <laughs> Are you serious? God, who knows anything before it happens, is quite sure that what he knows must happen. 
Divine foreknowledge assures a thing as good as done. And so the Bible says here, God's immovable, irreversible purpose was already set in place before there was a planet Earth, let alone a stable at the back of an inn in Bethlehem. Before his son came forth as that baby born of a virgin woman, God knew exactly what he would do, when he would do it, how he would do it, the cross that would take Jesus out of this world, how the resurrection would happen, how the ascension would happen. It was all God's plan, marvelously coming about. Should we not tremble before a God who plans and executes things like that? The plan of the cross was drawn up, you could say, in the star chamber of deepest heaven. I hope you see something to wonder at in all of this. Human minds should be staggered as angels themselves quake before the plan of God bringing his Son into the world. God planning not just to send Christ, but to send him effectively for all those who would come and cling to him in faith and become his. And so Peter comes to the conclusion, Therefore our faith and hope are in this God this great God of wonders. Do you have a little better idea what a proper fear of God is all about? God who we should love and adore as Father and yet also revere and respect as a judge. Can you remain blasé before this God? I truly hope you are not one of those people who would say, oh yes, ho-hum, more boring theology. How I pity you if you respond in such a way. Folks, no matter who you are today, if you've never been in this sanctuary before, if you don't have a denomination by which you call yourself, I want you to see this very basic thing that our text makes known. A real Christian is someone who has discovered proper reverential fear of God and who can bow low in all their personal pride and pray to him the way I'm going to pray. Bow your head and pray with your spirit along with me. Here's what your prayer needs to say. Just as I am without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me. And you bid me come to you, Lord. So, O Lamb of God, I do come. I come. Amen.